I'm not a UFO investigator. I'm a historian who is interested in the UFO phenomenon uh, and the, the people who make up the UFO phenomenon rather than the UFOs themselves. And in some ways, it's a distinction without a difference. Ladies and gentlemen, we know The exopolitics movement had the evidence and the proof that they pretend like they have or that they act like they have, then why hasn't the whole thing come crashing down already? Exactly. They know it's not going to go anywhere, but they know there's always going to be people to financially and journalistically support them in their efforts that they know will go nowhere, that they can recycle every decade or so. What was great about Bill Cooper is, is that, I mean, great in, a, in an impressive way, not great in a, I love the man and, and, you know, wish he had been my spiritual mentor. And, <laughs> um, and you want to meet people with some interesting ideas about things. You walk around a blood plasma donation center with a copy of Behold a Pale Horse at 6 in the morning, and you will meet some interesting people who've had some interesting experiences. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. Coming at you with another taped installment of the program, and this edition of the show, my friends, is fantastic, if I do say so myself. Our guest is historian and writer Aaron Gullius, who joins us for a discussion on his book, The Chaos Conundrum, which is a refreshing collection of essays that looks at a variety of paranormal genres, from an observer's perspective. As many long-time BOA audio listeners know, I like to take the outsider's perspective on all this stuff as well, so I felt a certain kinship of sorts with Aaron as we examined all of these various paranormal genres. Over the course of this highly informal conversation, we are going to delve into the emerging science of archaeoacoustics, as well as the promising future for cryptozoology, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time smashing the fourth wall of UFO research and talking about the challenges of studying a 60-plus year old field that has no discernible officialdom and a very sketchy history. In addition to all that, we're going to discuss the insanity of exopolitics, the legendary Bill Cooper, and the infamous Behold a Pale Horse, contactees versus abductees, and everyone's favorite UFO event, Roswell. In total, this is a thoughtful edition of the program, reminiscent of our frequent conversations with BOA Audio's regular circle of friends, as we look beyond the here and now in favor of the then, both in the past and speculatively towards the future, with Aaron Gullius. 
For those of you who are unfamiliar with Aaron Gullius, please allow me to take a moment and provide you with a little background on him. Aaron Gullius is a historian, writer, and associate professor of history at Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan, where he teaches all manner of courses. His newest publication is The Chaos Conundrum, Essays on UFOs, Ghosts, and Other High Strangeness in Our Non-Rational and Atemporal World, from Red Star Books. Previously, he has written in Fandom's Shadow, being a Doctor Who fan from the 1990s to today, a brief ebook exploring aspects of Doctor Who in light of its 50th anniversary. His first book, Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist, Alien Contact Tales since the 1950s, was published by McFarland Books in May of 2013. He contributed the introduction to the first volume of Post-Human Blues, a collection of writings by the late Mac Tonys, published by Red Star Books. And he is currently working on a study of paranormal and conspiracy-themed science fiction television programs from the 1990s. When he is not teaching, writing, or being a husband and dad, you will find him reading comic books and brewing beer, often simultaneously. His website is www.ajgullius.com. Dot com. Let me spell that one for you, folks. A-J-G-U-L-Y-A-S dot com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 10th, 2014. Aaron Gullius, talking about the Chaos Conundrum on BOA Audio Season 8. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. You're in store, I think, for a very intriguing and enlightening conversation. I've already spent the last 10 minutes talking to this guy, and we finally said, all right, we better start this this show. So hopefully folks can dive on in right away. Talking about Aaron Gullius, our guest. He is the author of a couple of books, The Chaos Conundrum, Essays on UFOs, Ghosts, and Other High Strangeness in Our Non-Rational and Atemporal World, as well as Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist. And you can find out more about him at ajgullius.com, and you spell that A-J-G-U-L-Y-A-S.com. And I just wrapped up reading The Chaos Conundrum last night and really, really enjoyed it. Thought-provoking book. It really... uh leads you into a lot of questions, makes you look at things from a different angle, and he takes a real outsider's approach to all this and looks at things, really pulls the microscope back to a very uh, interesting perspective and looks at things on a big-picture basis, which I really do appreciate. And a lot of that can be found in the chaos conundrum. Aaron, thank you for coming on BOA Audio. It's uh, long overdue, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. Well, as you know, I presume you've heard some of the programs. We start out with yeah. the bio, the background, you know, who is Aaron Gullius? How did you get involved in all this? What made you decide to, uh, you know, take part in the paranormal circus? 
Well, it started when I was a little kid. I mean, not that I had any experiences or anything like that, but um, one thing I always sort of go back to is, is when I was a kid, like five, six, seven years old, every Sunday afternoon, my local uh, independent syndicated uh, TV station there in northeast Indiana would play an episode of the old uh, Leonard Nimoy in Search Of show. Oh, yeah. So I, I started watching that, and I'd see the ones about the Bermuda Triangle and Amelia Earhart, and uh, I think they had one on uh, on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction and various flying saucer and ghost things and uh, and that really got me into it and then as i as i grew up like junior high high school i read a lot of books uh, there was a guy I don't know if his books are still in print, but there was a guy named Daniel Cohen who wrote a lot of books about paranormal topics that were aimed at uh, at young readers. Uh, there was one, The World's Most Famous Ghosts, was one that I liked. And there was one called Monsters, Flying Saucers, and Little Men from Mars, or something like that, yeah. that covered the basic, uh, sort, sort of the ba- some of the famous UFO stories from the 50s and 60s. And uh, in in high school, and as a senior in high school, the X Files started. That was in 1993. And seeing that, and reading um, reading Howard, uh, no, not Howard, uh, somebody Bloom, B L U M, his book Out There, uh, which was mostly about the MJ12 papers, really sort of piqued my interest. And then when I went off into college, I discovered this new thing called the Internet and uh, Usenet forums like Alt, Alien, Visitors, and a lot of the Paranet, uh, Paranet news groups and, um, and a lot of the text files have been floating around uh, by Bill Cooper and Bill English and Bill Moore hmm. and, uh, and all those guys. And so I sort of got into that, that John Lear stuff and, and all the sort of dark, scary alien abduction stuff like that. And yeah. So it, it sort of went from there. And then in grad school, I, uh, I, I, was, I had narrowed down my master's thesis topics to either uh, pro wrestling in the 1950s <laughs> or flying saucers in the 1950s. And Good in those, Good pre- YouTube, those pre-YouTube days, I really didn't see how I could get my hands on enough old wrestling footage to actually do do enough research on it. So I sort of ended up with the Flying Saucers by default. But there's a sort of gap in the scholarly literature, as far as history goes, about the Flying Saucer uh, phenomenon in the 50s and 60s. It gets sort of mentioned and name-dropped here and there. But apart from uh, David Jacobs' uh, Flying Saucers, um, I forget the name of the book, the, the, the UFO Controversy in America, that I just glanced at my shelf, the <laughs> UFO Controversy in America that Jacobs wrote back when he was a, you know, just a, a UFO guy, um, before he became the abduction, hypnosis, bizarre mind games with women guy that <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. he ended up becoming. Um, he prior to his ascension, very, which was prior then to yeah, his, 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 his ascension. <laughs> Actually, speaking of Jacobs, I, uh, I met him um, when I was an undergrad. I went to Hanover College in southern Indiana. And the advisor of our, our history student club there was, you know, he was a, a UFO buff. And, and for our spring speaker, we brought in David Jacobs. Oh, wow. Um, and, and he had just published um, The Threat. Uh, the Threat was just coming out. Secret yeah. Life had been out for a couple of years, and The Threat came out. And, and we, um, we had a little Q&A session with him and had dinner with him. And uh, that was kind of cool. It was just a few of us students and our advisor and David Jacobs. And then he did his, his usual talk about the, uh, the alien abduction. And and it was 
it was a uh, it was a um, it was a weird experience meeting him because even then I was I was very interested in the contactees much more than I was about the abduction phenomenon and he was so sort of arrogantly dismissive of the contactees and then an hour later he's up on stage talking about how you know there's there's X percentage of of alien human hybrids living on the earth right now and and they're going to you know you know suck out our souls or something like that yeah or just thinking that you know you really should not be too dismissive of too many things when you're up there saying what you're saying, um, but yeah, so so it's been a lifelong a lifelong interest, really. Okay, I mentioned here when I was talking about the book, you do take an outsider perspective, just like I do. It's kind of a difficult transition in a way because once you once you sort of begin producing content, then you kind of have to keep a foot in both camps, if you will. You know what I mean? You, you're for better or for worse, yeah. whether you like it or not, you're now in the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, um, and it's it's kind of awkward because I don't want to be. You right, know, it's right. it's not something that. Um, this isn't a, a sort of permanent career path. It's, it's very much a, a sideline for me, the, the writing. I mean, I teach at a community college, and that means we don't have, you know, breaks in our teaching to do research. All the research and writing I do is, is very much on top of a full teaching load. So I don't have a lot of time to go out and be UFO guy. And, uh, I mean, I get laughed at enough at meetings, you know, <laughs> the UFO guy. But, um, but uh, it, it is it is very difficult because you know you go on on these podcasts and I've I've done a lot of really fun interviews, and um, I have to sort of remind the host that no I'm not I'm not a UFO I'm not a UFO investigator right um, I'm I'm a historian who is interested in the the UFO phenomenon uh, and the the people who make up the UFO phenomenon rather than the UFOs themselves and and that is uh, that's a distinction. Um, it's in some ways it's a distinction without a difference because you end up having to have some sort of view about the phenomenon uh, because honestly that's what people are going to ask you. You know, what do you think about about these flying saucers? And when I was writing the contact ebook, uh, extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist, and when that came out, I mean, my colleagues, relatives, friends are like, well. Well, do you talk about what you think about the flying saucers? And I'm like, it's not that kind of book. It's a straight sort of cultural history thing. Um, and so in a lot of ways, the chaos conundrum is, uh, is sort of, I described it to, to friends as like, okay, you sit me down, you buy me a beer, and you say, so what do you think about all this? Yeah. Like, okay, here it is. You know, nine bucks. You know, there you go. Don't, you know, it's the price of a, a good beer. So you, you know, you, you get the whole thing right there without having to spend time with me, which is a bonus. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to talk to me about this. Just read the book and, you know, come talk to me afterwards. Well, if you're but, anything um, like me, it's, when you're at the bar and you're having the beer, the last thing you want to talk about is this stuff. When sometimes people <laughs> bring it up, and you're you, like, you know, "I don't want to get into all that right now." Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it is it is a, it is a lot like that, and and you know, it's especially right after you're done writing it, or, or or for you, I suppose, right after you're done with a series of interviews, or when you've gotten done reading a bunch of stuff, it's it's you just want to break from it for a while. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and of course, that's the nice thing is with the, the huge gaps between getting something written and having it published. By the time the books come out, I'm usually recharged and ready to talk about it again. Uh, so that's that's a good thing. But but yeah, it, it's it's a it's a weird sort of like you said, you sort of have a foot in both camps. You're you're the you know outside observer of 
the people, but you're also one of the people you're observing. There's a weird sort of, yeah. you know, Heisenberg principle going on there where you, you, you can't quite be as much of an outsider as you want to be or that you should be. Exactly. Sometimes. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I've, I've sort of struggled with it myself, you know, where you're, you start out as a fan, but then you become part of the fabric of it all, <laughs> whether you right. like it or not, you know, it's a, it's right. a question I ask myself all, not every day, but certainly a few times a year. <laughs> Would it have been better just to right. state a fan, but what are you going to do? Yeah, but you know, as a fan, you don't get to talk to as many cool people as you get to talk to when you're sort of on the fringes, and, and for me, the very, very, as I, as I told a, a friend today, I'm a, you know, you know, G-list paranormal personality here. You know, I'm, I'm about as far on the fringe as you can get, but I've talked to some interesting people. I've, I've talked to, I've been on Radio Mysterioso a couple times. I've, I've gotten to know Paul Kimball. I'm, I'm talking to you. You know, there, there's some, there's some cool people you meet. So that's something that as a fan, you wouldn't necessarily get the, uh, get the opportunity to do. So, you know, there's, there's pros and cons. Right, right, exactly. Well, the odd thing about the paranormal, we've talked about this uh, on the show before, I think with Greg, but I, I don't recall who, but it's, you say it's, you do, you can meet a lot of these people, you know, even the A-list, like, celebrities of the paranormal are really not actual celebrities, so you can, right. <laughs> you can email uh, Stan Friedman and you'll hear back from him. Or you can reach yeah. out to like David Ike, and he'll probably get back in touch with you. I mean, that might be a different. Yeah, that's case, that's not but, something you know. I want to do. <laughs> yeah, because I'll I'll just make some smart ass remark about uh, about uh, Boxcar Willie or something. So being a lizard person, so you know, it, it's. <laughs> but yeah, I remember when I was when I was in grad school. I think the the one um, sort of current UFO superstar I did do some some correspondence with just to clarify some of his views was uh, was Richard Boylan. Um I don't know if he's still around but uh he's doing a lot with this whole indigo children thing oh, God. and um he it it's it, oh man that guy is man it's like he is he is very much into the positive vision of the ETs and that the only thing stopping us from having universal harmony is the government, you know, not admitting the truth. It's it's like he thinks the exopoliticians are a little too cynical. It's almost that level of of wide-eyed belief. Um and so I I asked him, you know, some things about contactees and and he, you know, assured me that many of their stories were absolutely true and were covered up by the cabal or whatever. So it was like, mm, well, okay. That's wonderful. But, yeah, very strange. <laughs> Well, well, we I have a lot of sort of ideas like that in the notes here about uh, the the uh, I don't even know what you'd call it the faulty mental games that that are going on in the examination of these phenomena. But uh, yeah. uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you about because uh, Nick Nick points it out. Nick Redfern wrote the forward to the Chaos Conundrum. He points it out as being particularly intriguing, and I was also very intrigued by it when I. Got to it in the book, is, uh, but I want to know more, and that is this this archaeo acoustics that you talk about. Oh uh, yeah, because it sounds yeah. really promising, but I've never heard of it before, and I, I'd like to know more it's, about. It. It's it's weird, and um, I'm I'm by no means an expert. Um, I'm you know the, some of the the reading I've done on it. Uh, you know, you get halfway down the the page or halfway through the article, and there's you know all sorts of graphs about you know acoustic waveforms, and and that's when you know they sort of lose me. But 
it's um, it, it's basically an idea. It's also back in the seventies. It was known as the uh, the stone tape theory. Okay. And uh, there's a actually a, a British horror movie or suspense movie, sort of in the uh, the classic Wicker Man mold of these early seventies British films called the Stone Tape, where there's these evil forces sort of embedded in the structure of this house itself, um, which is which is very interesting. If if your listeners are um, Amazon Prime members, uh, the Stone Tape is available for free viewing. Uh, through the Amazon Prime thing, which means it's probably on Netflix as well. But uh, it's a film worth checking out. But it's, it's basically the idea or the theory that um, if you flood an area, say like Stonehenge or some sort of stone circle in Europe, something sufficiently old, with uh, with certain frequencies, I think one of the examples that's been used is, is something called pink noise. You know, we have white noise and gray yeah. noise. There's also pink noise, which is a certain frequency. That if you um, that you can like pick up acoustic patterns for how spaces might have been used um, orally. Now I'm spelled you know a u r. Yeah, yeah. Things you hear, um, not orally. Um, yeah, get your mind out of the gutter, thing. folks. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a sick <laughs> pervert, but. Um, I don't want to know how Stonehenge was used orally. That's, yeah, I'm that's sure it was. But um, sort of licking the rocks and things. But, oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, – so um, I didn't get much sleep last night. Uh, it's all right. So there's uh, there, there's this, this notion that you can you can sort of hear or record – audio waveforms that come back after these things have been flooded with these uh, these certain frequencies and it can tell us how these spaces might have been used now this ranges from from very sort of sort of straightforward archaeological expressions like some some spaces in in India if um they've found that you know when certain frequencies are aimed at parts of a particular temple or these pillars in this temple that what bounces back are the the tones in in sort of standard Indian musical scales, classical Indian musical scales. So there, there's things like that that yeah. the people who built these things might have had audio purposes for the structures they uh, they they constructed. It's just another way to look at these these spaces. But there's also, and this is more the fringe of this uh, of this investigation is the idea that things that happened in the past might be in some way recorded on the structures around them. And so that if we find the right frequency, we can sort of unlock what happened in the past. And that maybe some uh, some expressions of hauntings, in fact, might be uh, incidents from the past, voices, conversations, cries for help, whatever, that might have been embedded in the structures around them. So it's a way to take this sort of traditional idea of hauntings out of the realm of of the spiritual, this idea that, you know, the soul or a bit of the soul that got left behind or something like that, and move it into um, – Move it into a realm that that someday, in some way, might be actually, you know, successfully subject to repeatable scientific testing yeah. and observation, which would be far ahead of of where most uh, most ghost investigations are now. I, I have friends who are ghost investigators, and and they do all sorts of amazing things. But um, you know, it, it, it's never, and I think they would admit this. It, it's you know, it's hard to get the same result twice. Hmm. With, with, with the same result with the, you know different people going in, you know people have different experiences because we bring our own our own psyches into that space as well. So um, it's just a different way, I think, to look at uh, to look at hauntings and, and to look at the idea 
of ghosts, not so much as, as bits of soul left behind or spirits that are floating around, but as, you know, the accumulated sort of sediment of, of human habitation yeah. over the course of millennia or centuries or even decades. Is, like I said, I never really heard about this. Is anyone actually out there trying to do this? I mean, um, you'd think yeah, that this would be I've, all over these shows and stuff, because... Yeah, I've, I, the thing is, the people who are doing it are, are actually trying to be, um, trying to be fairly circumspect about, um, about what they're, uh, what they're doing. I've got a post on my website from back in December, so it's like halfway down the page, um, on some background on some, uh, some, uh, archaeoacoustic stuff. There is, there are two men, uh, one's, one guy is Paul, uh, Paul Devereaux, and another one, John Wozencroft, uh, and there's a link, um, there's a link there on the website, uh, that people can get to, and it's, um, the, la- the website, uh, where a lot of these articles are, it's landscape hyphenperception.com and there's a lot of really interesting background and information about all the background of, of this archaeoacoustics thing. Not hmm. necessarily the, the paranormal side of it, but the actual science side of, of how archaeologists are using um, technology to determine how sound was used. In, um, in these archaeological places. Right. So on my website, which I'm sure will be linked from yours, um, they scroll down to the posts from mid-December. I've got a link there. I first heard about it from, um, comic and comic writer and novelist Warren Ellis. Uh, he wrote about it on his website <laughs> a few years ago and, and mentioned some of this stuff, um, in connection with, uh, the musician Julian Cope, who'd, uh, British musician Julian Cope, who'd done some, some work on ancient British paganism. And and so I just sort of filed that in the back of my head. This is probably about four or five years ago or something. And then when I was working on on this this, this part of the chaos conundrum, the, the essays that were that make up this book, I was like, wait a minute, that you know, thing A has plugged into thing B and reminded me of thing C and I sort of went back on the on the net and found this stuff. And uh it, it's fascinating and, and a lot of the sciencey part of it is is way over my head. Yeah. So. Yeah. But there's a lot of information out there. It's just it's just being talked about in the fringes of archaeology rather than in the fringes of the paranormal. So I think those are two worlds that haven't quite uh there's a gap between them that hasn't quite closed. So um so maybe Hopefully, there's going to be some more work coming out of this in the next few years. It sounds promising. It's a different approach to things, which I like, uh, which is a, sort of a theme that comes up in the chaos conundrum, too. That, that It's difficult sort of to get new ideas going in the paranormal, right. especially nowadays. I've talked on the show about this malaise of ufology and the UFO phenomenon, but it, it, it's, it's kind of creeped into a lot of other... Uh, genres let's say other other now that i'm saying that i kind of am backtracking a little bit on that because the other genres seem to they're getting a little bit hotter while ufology stays at this plateau that it's been at uh for the last like yeah yeah i i think you know the last sort of high watermark i I think and 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 this is something that is incredibly debatable but i think the last high watermark really was that roswell 50th anniversary back in 97 as far as mainstream attention on these things that was that was huge i mean front page cover art cover stories in you know time and newsweek and and the old us news and world report and and it was out there and and 
people were people who normally weren't into these things were into these things hmm. and um i don't know I, I think there's i think there's a case to be made that that september 11th really shifted things because all of a sudden you know I mean, maybe this is just me but but suddenly flying saucers didn't seem that important um the the world the world politics foreign policy everything went from being this sort of pleasant but muddy post cold war well what are we going to do with ourselves now to this this sort of you know non-stop never ending global war on terrorism and, and the sort of decade of 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 fear and uncertainty mm-hmm. and um and, and and the paranormal stuff to a degree went back went back into the fringes now now recently in in recent years what we've seen is is it comes back in the popular culture but it's coming back in in ways that aren't necessarily good for it um you see a lot of these these reality shows uh you know ghost hunting shows and ufo chasers or something like yeah, that yeah, a lot of and in and what that really does, I think, is it, it sort of highlights just how, in a lot of cases, and I haven't seen all these shows, but it highlights how kind of, kind of goofy and inconsequential and inconclusive some of this stuff is. And so the really good, important research and, and stories that have been out there for the last 60 years, um, are kind of getting lost in, in what fits into a, an hour or a half hour show on cable that meets what the network and the advertisers want to think they want to see and think the public wants to see in a show about the paranormal. So, so I think a lot of the the depth is getting lost in uh, in a lot of sort of gloss and and glamour and and superficiality. Of course, I say the same things about you know what the History Channel does with history. It's the same sort of thing. We, we've taken interesting, crucial events in whatever topic you have, and then you you sort of extract thirty eight minutes of of you know fun, uh, highly advertisable crap that the <laughs> yeah. general public thinks is interesting. Um, it, it's 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 fine for what it is, but what it is isn't very useful, in my opinion. I mean, right. like it, they like it. It's Yeah, it's sort of like, I was thinking about this uh, having read the book, and uh, uh, we were talking before we got on the air about professional wrestling. We must confess to the folks, uh, but, but uh, <laughs> part of the, and, and how these are sort of parallel worlds, and part of the issue, I think, with the paranormal in a lot of ways is to break it from that analogy. It's kind of like an episodic TV show. It's kind of like Lost or or even more or professional wrestling or soap opera where you can right. – it's hard for people to just jump right into it. And once you get into it, you have to learn all about the backstory of all this stuff. And so it, yeah. it – and, and, and along the entire spectrum of of the fields – are people who've been, you know, who've been watching since the 50s, you know, or the, or people yep. who just picked it up uh, through X Files, so they don't know about all this stuff. So so, and then you're you're getting into all these different ranges of knowledge of of the show, for lack of a better term. Right. That's it. That's a good way to put it. Um, another parallel would be comic books. I exactly. Mean, if, if if anybody out there picked up an, an issue of the X uh, the X Men in the 1990s, um, you would have no idea what was going on for those 22 pages. Um, and back before the days of Wikipedia, to tell you 
you know exactly who all these people are. Um, it was it was very very difficult. There were no easy jumping on points. And um, I, I think I think thinking about about ufology for example, I think ufology out of all the the paranormal right. fields is, is the one that fits this best. Although the Bigfoot stuff has has been incredibly convoluted, um, and the JFK stuff as well. But but ufology really does have this sort of episodic sort of peaks and valleys of, of popularity and, and, and things that uh, that have gone on over uh, over the last 60 years or so. And if you have a sort of natural inclination to to do lots of research into what happened in decades past and try to construct a narrative out of all of these different things that have been said and written, um, you know, you can you can figure out pretty much what's gone on as far as what the field has done, which I think is why I, as a history guy, as a historian, find it so interesting because there's so much documentation to go back and look at. Um, but but for people just coming into it, it it's well, I remember how I was back when I was you know 17 or something. It was it was impossible. Everything I read, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the holy grail of information. Yeah, and then yeah. I read something else is like, oh yeah, you read that? Yeah, that's that's a hoax. And I'm like, oh. Okay, well, I know that's a hoax now, and then I'd read something else. Well, we're not sure it's a hoax. You know, some more people are looking at it. And, and so I, pretty soon, I, I, I think I, the MJ-12 papers are the best example of, of that sort of thing, where you're not sure if it's the coolest, most secret, awesome thing ever, or if it's cool and awesome because it's such an awesome hoax. Um, so I sort of go back and back and forth, and, and you know, it, it's hard to – it's hard to maintain an interest in it without becoming some sort of psychopath or, you know, having it be an expression of your already existing psychopathology, right? You know, you, you become sort of this, this obsessive recluse that people can't relate to because all you can do is talk about this guy. But, but if you read this other guy, you know, right, this other right. opinion it's of It's a him, rabbit hole. Like, Once you go, you, you, you yeah. start going into it. And, and it is like comics and, and all that other stuff in a way, you know, it's like, it's like people who binge watch TV shows. It's once you get yeah. into it, you have to keep, you, you have to keep getting the next thing. You have, you, you read one book right. and then you, there's references to some other guy and you're like, well, who's this guy? And then you look into that and next thing you know, it's six months later. <laughs> right. So right. It, it's a crazy, and, it's a crazy thing to go down. And I'm sure all the people listening right now are, are, are the same experience. I'm sure they're, that it is far gone, <laughs> like you and I are. <laughs> yeah. They're way, you know, way. and, and honestly, I mean, maybe this is the way it was for you with 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 starting up BOA and and doing the podcasting. But but I I wrote these books and I'm continue to do this work because I feel like I need to come out with some sort of concrete product to um to, to sort of justify all the time I've spent looking at this. <laughs> um, because otherwise, it it's like you know I've spent all this time on you know Usenet archives over the years, reading these arguments back and forth back in 1996. And and what have I got? It's sort of like what have I got to show for it? Well, now I, I got I got books. So and you've got a podcast and and you know we've got these things. But um, but for a long time I, I and I I you know drift away from it and then drift back to it. You know as my interest in it sort of ebbed and flowed over the yeah. years. But but I always I always tend to come back to it. And the nice thing is it's it's big enough you can come back to um, you can come back to different things. I mean I'm. I'm about as as sick of contactees as one can be um, at this point. Uh, just, I mean, kind of. I mean, I say that, and then I'm thinking, well, really, am I? But probably not. But the the, the you know, it, it it comes and goes. I know what you mean. It comes and goes. Yeah. 
like I said when I first uh, asked you for the bio, the background, it's a circus. The whole thing is a, it's yeah. a, it's a strange circus, and that's why I enjoy. I've already enjoyed talking to you so far because you, you, we do share a definite outsider perspective on all this because I try not to really get into <laughs> these things. Although I think like, like, like me, uh, if there was one area, it would be the UFO phenomenon that this is probably my wheelhouse of, of topics. Yeah. And uh, you do a good job of uh, dismantling the exopolitics movement in the chaos conundrum. And I, I agree. I found myself shaking my head in agreement with a lot of, of the points. It's a very prickly uh, realm because – Yeah. I, I, it, go, it, ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, was, I was just going to say it, it's I – think, I think all the work I did researching the contactees and all the contactee stuff – from you know not just the 50s and 60s, but the the channeling stuff from the seven like Tuella's books from the 70s and 80s and all the Ashtar stuff. Um, it, it, there's nothing new in exopolitics. There, there's nothing new at all. They've they've taken the the optimism and the space brotheriness of the contactees, and they've taken the conspiracy stuff from the 80s and 90s, and they have they have picked and picked and chosen from things that go well together they've put those together and they've they've called it something new and exciting and it's it's not it's the same old crap it it really is i mean oh there were crash saucers oh the government's hiding technology oh this oh that this is the same thing we've been talking about for the last for the last 50 60 years in one way or another and and the um the citizens hearing or whatever they had this last year yeah was was just the most I mean, I mean, no offense to anybody out there who thought this was a great idea, but this is one of the most asinine displays of of nonsense that I've ever seen. I mean, it was substantively no different than than the big press conferences they'd call back at the National Press Club, you know, ten, fifteen years ago. Yeah, and yeah. and ju- just like that, they, they they just like those things, they they basically rent a room. Bring in a bunch of people that we've mostly heard before, and either accept or dismiss them before, and put them all in one place and pretend like they're doing something phenomenal. The, the twist this time, as as you and your listeners know, was to have some you know washed up former politicians there to be sort of a pretend congressional committee. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure how much a, how much credibility a real congressional committee would have. You know, much less you know these these sort of you know has-beens and never-wers. That they uh, that they that they brought up um, and paid. So it was. I mean, it, it, and paid. Yeah. Oh my God! What twenty five grand a piece or something like that? Something along those lines. It, yeah, it, it's. I mean, if, if I were you know Mike Gravel or or Carolyn Sheeks Kilpatrick, I'd be like, hell yeah, give me twenty five grand to sit there and, and nod serenely as as these nut jobs talk. Yeah, I'll take that money. But well, I guess you it, know it, it's a double edged sword in a way. I understand. I understand why they paid them. But it also it speaks to the futility of all this that they had to pay them. Yeah. That there was no one. Yeah. That there was no one that would from Congress that that would just come for free because they thought it was a good idea. Yeah, and <laughs> you know we're, we're I know we're only we're only ten uh, ten fifteen years out from you know when when there was a serious serious talk in Congress of of having another sort of. Sort of um, Condon Committee style investigation. I, I forget the guy's name, but the uh, the congressman from New Mexico, who uh, who really pushed for for you know some sort of investigation, and you know it it didn't it didn't happen, or at least it didn't happen 
to as great a degree as maybe it should have. And um, a lot of people have placed the blame on the exopolitics crowd and the sort of I'm a I'm a UFO lobbyist type guy. What's his um, Steve Bassett? What's his face? Uh, yeah, Steve Bassett. You know, I'm a, I'm a UFO lobbyist. Well, you know, that's great for you, but what does that actually mean? You know, it, it it's it becomes almost an exercise in, in, in sort of it's very cynical. It's just a very cynical. You get the impression that I mean. I'm cynical about it. I mean, they know it's not going to go anywhere, but they know there's always going to be people to to financially and and journalistically support them in their efforts that they know will go nowhere, that they can recycle every decade or so. Boy, I sound really sort of bitter and angry about it. I mean, I don't really care that much, but it, it does irritate me that, um, I don't know, that our, are our memories so short that we think that this time we get these witnesses together and this is going to be the big breakthrough? Or do we really believe that, that all of this disclosure is just around the corner, like they've been telling us for the last generation? Hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't know if – part of me wants to say that, that the, the Greers and the Bassets of the world probably don't believe it either. But, you know, they've – you know, it's their bread and butter. Uh, but that's sort of the cynical – the cynical viewpoint. Um, maybe they believe every word of it. Maybe they believe some of it, but know how to spin it in a way that makes it look better to to the public, or at least to the public they're aiming at. I don't know. It, it just it, it's very frustrating. The exopolitics thing is is very frustrating. Yeah. To me because there there are good witnesses and good interesting stories hidden in there, almost almost literally hidden between the the the, the usual nonsense. And um, you know things like things like Bentwaters, thing that case, and and you know the whole Rendlesham Forest thing, and the Cash Landrum case. There are some really really interesting stories that even if they don't point to extraterrestrial visitors and physical spacecraft, point to things that are that are very interesting as far as as far as the history of of how citizens have related to their governments and, and the relationship between the public and defense establishments. There are a lot of deep, dark stories that are waiting to be told that have become bound up with the flying saucer UFO phenomenon. And um, and this is a very sort of uh, Greg, Greg Bishop-esque sort of approach, but you know, people who need to keep secrets are aware of the strange ideas that people on the fringe have, and they will use those strange ideas in order to hide what they're doing. And, and I think that's a really interesting side of it that the exopolitics movement misses, that there is disinformation, there is secrecy, that yes, this is true, but it's not because they're hiding secret alien technology. It's because they're doing A, B, and C that might be illegal, unethical, or a bad use of taxpayer money, or actively harmful to the American public, uh, or anybody else's public. So I, I think there's all sorts of kernels of truth in these things, but not for the reasons that some of the exopolitics crowd might think so. Right. See, my issue with the exopolitics uh and you hit it on the head in the in the book too is they they've jumped they've jumped ahead and haven't finished the job of actually proving UFOs and so yes. they they can't show their work <laughs> to use a, a teacherly <laughs> term and they just insist that they have the answer without actually having anything 
to actually prove that UFOs are real. And it's where right. somewhere along the way the UFO research community and there's still people doing the work, but they lost the plot a little bit here because it's our job to prove this. If if we're UFO, you know, our us being UFO researchers, let's say, not you and I, right. you know what I mean? Um, right. It, it's it's up to the UFO community to prove it, and they haven't proven it yet. And so they, I feel like they've almost thrown their hands up, and and now they're like, just tell us the answer already. Right. There, there's a whole set of, of of a priori, you know, assumptions that that go into most of the UFO field now. And then the biggest one is is the one you mentioned that there are that there are space aliens out there in what we call structured craft uh, coming and sort of buzzing the planet and making contact. This isn't even something that's discussed because you know, the vast majority just assume this is the way things are. And all the debates, you know, center around the degree to which the government has knowledge and isn't sharing knowledge and what that might mean. But we haven't quite gotten to the point where we can just accept the existence of these things just as a general principle. Uh, like you said, we haven't done the we haven't done the basic work of proving the uh of proving the extraterrestrial and let's emphasize the word hypothesis which is a hypothesis that, that hasn't been proven, and evidence is not proof. And absence of evidence might not mean evidence of absence, but it's still an absence of evidence, right? So, exactly. you know, there, there's, you know, you can, you can, you know, talk till you're blue in the face about, you know, what this great contact with the extraterrestrials will mean for humankind and, and how many different varieties of extraterrestrials are walking around and the short grays and the tall whites and all of these different things. But, but in the end, there's no absolute proof that any of this is is real, um, which is which is which has got to be frustrating for those who sort of operate as though it it has been. Although not as frustrating for those who still realize they need to prove that. Uh, really frustrating for them. For those who already just assume it, they can just go on and talk about you know their Philip Corso, you know. Yeah, those people are in denial. Of, yeah. The people, right. you know, then there's like you and I who are, who acknowledge the elephant in the room, or I like to call it ufology's dirty little secret, which is that we don't know what UFOs are. <laughs> that, right. You know, they don't right. ever want anyone to know that we don't know. <laughs> it's just the craziest part about it. <laughs> right. It, it's, uh. it's frustrating because I, I think the, the fun is the the fun is there's there's two things that are fun about this whole UFO phenomenon for me. One of them is studying the people and, and sort of sort of tracking the stories that have come and gone over the years and how these stories have developed and and the connections between them and how they tie into the wider culture and how the wider culture influences them and is influenced by them. That that's that's the one fun part of it and that's the the sort of scholarly bread and butter stuff that I've done. And the other fun part of it is is trying to figure out what all of these things might actually be. Um whether it's whether it's aliens from space, whether it's uh, whether it's crypto terrestrials, whether it's time travelers or interdimensional beings, or swamp gas, or I'm in I'm in Michigan, so I gotta gotta say swamp gas. Hey, yeah, swamp gas. That's what it was down in the Hillsdale back in the day. <laughs> um, poor poor J. Allen Hynek having to to say the swamp gas thing. That oh, never really lived that down. But uh, you know, whatever it is, it's interesting. And um, I, I think the discussions about what it might be are sort of 
on the speculative side of it, that's the fun part for me. Not necessarily, you know, accepting that it's this one thing and then going from there because, you know, we have no way to accept that. It really is very much akin to, to religion in that sense. There, there are, there are huge chunks that people are simply taking on faith. And they have, they have what they think is proof, but it's not really proof for anybody outside that belief system. So, you know, what they consider proof isn't necessarily what somebody who needs to be convinced would consider proof. Much like, you know, you can have all the logical proofs of of the doctrine of the incarnation and transubstantiation and and or or the nature of the Buddha or, you know, the teachings of, of Muhammad, um, the teachings of Allah through Muhammad. You can have all of these things, but for an outsider to to accept that, you know, there has to be a measure of faith. And then the proof becomes proof, if that makes sense. No, I know but, but to those who are outside of that system, it's not proof. It's simply articles of, articles of belief. Exactly, and that's what I think that they don't understand, these people in the exopolitics. Or maybe they do understand it, but they, I, they're, they're just saying, we give up, we want you to tell us the answer. It's like if they, right. if, if you want the government to tell us the, 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 what they know about UFOs, why don't we prove what they are and then bring that to the government and be like, hey right. dude, we have a UFO here, so do you mind, do you mind telling us what's going on? That, then you'll see disclosure. It'll happen overnight. <laughs> but right. but you have to do the work. Yep. Yep. If, if there is something there to be found, you have to find it. Exactly. Because if 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 there's no compelling reason for for the government or, or elements within the government, you know, if we take that tack, um, elements within the government to tell you what they're hiding, why should they? You, if if you don't have the evidence of what they're hiding. They're not going to come forward with it. You have to force their hand. Mm. And for all their talk, the exopoliticians have not had enough information to force their hand. It doesn't matter if Leon Panetta or, or John Podesta back during the Clinton years thought they should declassify some stuff and were also fans of the X-Files. That is not evidence, you know, now that, you know, so-and-so or whichever one of the guys is, is one of Clinton's or Obama's advice. What year is it? Uh, one of Obama's <laughs> advisors. Um, it, it, you know, just because, you know, John Podesta is still hanging around does not mean the disclosure is imminent. You know, it, it's, you know, he was, he was active in the last Democratic administration. He's active in this one. That's just politics. The fact that he was an X-Files fan and thought it would be nifty if, the government declassified certain files, and you know that's great. But that doesn't mean that ah, that's not that's not a smoking gun. If the exopolitics movement had the evidence and the proof that they pretend like they have or that they act like they have, then why hasn't the whole thing come crashing down already? Exactly. That, that's what I want to know. Where's my flying car? If all of this technology is out there waiting for the right moment for the right people just to say, okay, release the Kraken, everybody gets jetpacks, and everybody goes to Venus or whatever, why hasn't it happened? I'm being remarkably dismissive of these people, but, you know, it's a Friday, long week. I can be dismissive. I'm, I'm, there's like three feet of snow on the ground. I'm, I'm feeling dismissive of, of exopoliticians today. So. No, yeah, well, you're in good company because that's how I feel. Uh, I find them very frustrating. And the difficult part, too, is uh, they've kind of taken over ufology, which is the disappointing part, Um, you know. And even the good people that I think are doing good research or good work, a lot of them end up having to co-op with uh, the exopolitics crowd. 
And it's yeah. not good. It's just not a good scene no. right now. It, it isn't. I, I th- that reminds me, of, last time I was on um, with Greg Bishop, uh, we, we sort of talked about the, the fact that, you know, somehow we all sort of did this sort of, you know, all of us right-thinking people, right-thinking people, that's, you know, yeah, I'm not arrogant at all. All of us right-thinking people, you know, sort of had this Rip Van Winkle moment. We woke up, and suddenly exopolitics are not just the nut jobs over in the corner. They're the establishment. Right. And um, there, there's been this shift to exopolitics from the previous paradigm, which was the sort of NICAP MUFON model of we're going to collect a whole lot of citing reports and filing cabinets, and we're going to reach a critical mass at some point where we have some sort of answer, to – like we've said, you know, we assume that this is what it is and this is what it means for humanity. And, and, and somehow I, I think we all sort of got, got, you know, frustrated or tired of the whole field and sort of got away from what was going on. We, we you know, take a peek back in. Certainly I did. And, and I, I can't believe that Stephen Greer with what used to be his C SETI group back in the 90s, shine, you know, paying 3,000 bucks to shine flashlights up in the sky to attract flying saucers is now some sort of elder statesman. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's weird. It's weird and it's frustrating and it's, it's kind of sad. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, there's not going to – I think it's, it's, almost, it's almost a good thing because we're, we're maybe getting away from the idea that there's going to be one sort of granddaddy of the field or one organization that's going to lead the way in, in solving all these things, sort of the NICAP MUFONism of the, uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, that maybe we're we're getting back to the idea that maybe this is a this is for small groups to think about this is for individuals to contemplate that maybe groups of thinkers like uh, Jacques Vallée's invisible college idea um small groups of of people working together outside of the spotlight are putting pieces together and forming conclusions that they will reveal when they're ready um rather than you know Signing up for something, paying a bunch of money, and getting you know a newsletter full of sighting reports every month uh, as being the way forward. So I don't know. Things are changing. Things are things are definitely transitioning to something else, and I, I think it remains to be seen whether or not what's coming is 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 good or not. Um, in, in the end, um, in the end, it, in the end, I'm not sure flying saucers are important enough for us to be too worried about what's happening next in ufology. Um, I just hope it's it's entertaining enough and and sort of meaty enough to continue supplying material for me to write about. And I'm, I'm sure you hope there are people worth interviewing in the future as the field goes forward. So exactly, who knows what's going to happen to it? Yeah, well, it doesn't keep me up at night. Uh, the direction of ufology, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know. I mean, there there are people. I'm sure there are people I'm who sure are, are people who are who are yeah, <laughs> yeah um, he, 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 he does. deeply deeply concerned about this. And an example is the, the, I think, very recent closing of the UFO, UFO updates mailing list uh, that, that Errol Bruce Knapp had been yeah. running for, Sad. you know, what, 7,000 years or something like that. And, you know, it, it's you know, my first reaction when I, when I saw that news was, oh, I remember that. You know, not, oh, my gosh, really? But that's still around. Yeah. Huh? Sort of like, sort of like when I heard Mae Young passed away. Honestly, I, I hadn't seen her on TV in a while, and I, I, I I sort of assumed she already had, which I mean, nothing against her. It's just not something I was paying a whole lot of attention to. Um, but for listeners, Mae Young is a, a was a recently passed away uh, uh, professional wrestler from way back in the day. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's it's 
you know, and, and there were people saying, well, what happens now that UFO updates is gone? I actually saw this what? conversation on some blog somewhere. I'm like, I don't know. What, what happens now that these you know, same dozen people won't say the same things to each other in email all day long? Life goes on. That's what happens. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of... Yeah, I sort of subscribed to it and then unsubscribed over a, a three-month period back uh, when I got sick of reading all these emails from from people that, even if I agreed with them, I I, I was like I you know it's the same arguments over and over and over, and I'm not sure where things go from here. Yeah. I, I really don't. I, honestly, I think I think the as much as I, I hate to say it, I, I think the real future for this stuff, the real exciting. Advances are, are going to be with uh, with our ghost hunting friends and with our with our cryptozoology friends because because those are things where there's a little more especially the cryptozoological stuff there's there's more to hang your hat on there I mean if you actually find DNA from some species that nobody really knew about or thought was extinct or something that's something that that it can stand up to some scrutiny. And I think there's going to be some, you know, interesting advances there, especially as, as technology um, advances and we're, as, you know, mapping and things like that and DNA sequencing and gene sequencing becoming more readily available and affordable to people who aren't at major research universities. Um, I think we're going to have some, some answers one way or another on some of that stuff. But I, I think the flying saucer field has become so... Uh, so convoluted, and um, I'm not sure if incestuous is the right word, but but so incestuous over the last couple decades that, I mean, it's just a giant Gordian knot now. I'm waiting for a giant flaming Alexander the Great sword to come around and, and hack it all to pieces, but not sure I'm going to like what's left of it afterward. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I've uh, I've championed. Um, you know, maybe looking at this from a statistical point of view, Nate Silver-esque uh, examination of whatever data we have. That's sort of my yeah. my uh, bailiwick lately. And obviously, and then the other thing is really that I've always been pushing for years is just to just to improve the public relations end of of, <laughs> of UFO studies. Yeah. But I, to, to turn it around to you, I mean, what what. At the risk of, because we don't, we don't want to just completely tear everything down no, without offering no, solutions. No. So what, what yeah. do you think the, what do you think UFO studies, uh, which is a very nebulous sort of term, ufology, I mean, if, if you, if you had a magic wand, if you had a, you know, an endless stream of money or something, I mean, what would you, what would you advise? If you had a platform <laughs> to advise these people, what would you advise, uh, ufology to do to try and improve what it's doing, which is to try and solve the UFO mystery. I really like uh, I really like what you said about uh, about stats and data and especially sort of a global effort to to provide some really good uh, geographical and statistical data on what kinds of things are seen where and when. And we have all kinds of technology for data visualization now. And I think that could provide some some useful some useful avenues to at least more fully understand what it is that we think we've been seeing over the past 60 years and continue to see. Um, and I think part of that approach has to be a, a willingness to back away um, sort of very explicitly and vocally and publicly back away from holding on to the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis as, as the only solution. Um, 
what we have are strange things seen in the skies and attendant phenomenon. Um, I almost want to put abductions and contacts in a separate bucket for now, you know, yeah. but just as far as, you know, straight on unidentified flying objects, let's get a good data handle on what it is. And let's, let's put that data, let's put the raw data in the hands of people who don't care about flying saucers and don't know about flying saucers and aren't steeped in the history of flying saucers. And let's just get the data into the hands of people who can analyze it as data, not analyzing it with a view to proving this, that, or the other, which is what so many people in the field do. Hmm. Um, so I, I think I think the data has to go hand in hand with a sort of redrafted approach to um, sort of opening it up again, almost like we did back in the fifties. Uh, I say we, but people you know many yeah. years older than us did back in the fifties, um, where you know we, we've got to figure out what this is. Um, if, uh, if, if you or your listeners have ever read it, uh, it sounds like a, an odd segue, but Gray Barker's, uh, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which was, uh, which was the book that introduced the whole idea of the men in black and the Albert Bender mystery to the world. Um, but the Albert Bender thing is, is part of it, but also there's this little sort of narrative thread of a whole bunch of people from different fields poring over these reports back in the 50s and offering a whole bunch of different outlandish ideas about what people might be seeing. And I, I think we've got to get back to that. We've got to get get out of this notion that, you know, how does this data prove that these are spaceships from another planet? Which which I think a lot of the organizations have done. Like you said, they they assume these are aliens. And so then they they look at the data that helps that helps prove that. Let's let the data lead us to conclusions rather than coming to the data with conclusions already made, which sounds like the most obvious dang thing on earth, but it, it's it's honestly really difficult to do. When you're when you're locked into a certain paradigm, it, it's hard to sort of to sort of back out of that. But I, I think that's what needs to be done. There needs to be a a shift in the perception of what we're looking for and then there needs to be sort of a heavy duty reliance on actual as much actual data as we can get. And yes, yeah, some of it's going to be subjective because we're dealing with reports that are being made by human beings, which brings each individual's perspective to what they're reporting. But uh, but there should be enough meat there to uh, to find something. So I, that's that's the first thing I would do is I, I would I like you focus on data, but I would, I would get that data into the hands of of heck. Let's 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 drag Nate Silver himself into this and say Nate, my statistics friend. Here's a bunch of information. You and your team just go to town and tell us tell us what pops out at you. Yeah. As far as trends and, and significant uh, statistically significant things, not things that might be interesting stories, but statistically significant things, um, which is which is hard for a for a narrative story guy like me to to sort of say. Let's look at statistics. That kind of hurts my soul a little bit. <laughs> but um, I, I've I've sort of you know sort of irritated sociologist by saying, it's interesting what you do because it's it's so boring and horrible. You must be a really interesting person to to be able to look <laughs> at all those numbers and, and not look at actual people and, and sort of find that fulfilling. And, and they're like, at least we have data. What do you have? I said, I have stories, <laughs> data, but mostly stories because history is all that sociology data made useful, but that's sort of, you know, academic turf wars. But uh I, which, you know, it, there's a lot of overlap between any sort of professional turf wars and, and 
the ufological field. But uh, but I, I think that's what I do. I, I, would, I, would, I would emphasize data, and I would emphasize looking at the data divorced from any sort of ideological perspective as much as possible. It seems like it's a it's a it's a promising direction. I presume they might. I know someone called in. I mentioned I talked about this with uh, Sharon Hill, like back in September or August or October, um, and and uh, someone called in a listener and and mentioned that Jacques Vallée did a study like this in the seventies, but that that was like thirty or forty years ago. It's time for uh, with the advancements in the technology and 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 data collection and everything cry yeah. out for a new study like this. Yeah, and 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 I think this is this is a function of of our ages. I'm I'm 38. You're I think you're probably younger than I am, but I'll be 35 maybe not by like two much. weeks. Yeah. Okay, so so yeah, you and I both sort of, you know, came of age in the 90s. And and we're we're of the age where if if somebody the the generation or two older than us says, well, yeah, that was done back in the 70s. I mean, we see this, you know, in our in our workplaces as well. You know, well, what about this? Well, we 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 tried that. Well, when did we try that? Back in the 70s. I'm like, that was that's more than a generation ago. Yeah. You know, that's the the statute of limitations has passed. We can look at these things again because we have you know almost 40 years more data, and we have 40 years of technological advances on on handling data and vis- and especially visualizing data and um, visualizing data in ways that uh, that's understandable to non-experts so we can draw on people from a variety of fields and uh, they don't all have to be specifically aerial phenomenon data people but yeah if you just look at the the national UFO reporting center you know they, they have the, he has his hotline he has you know the latest research reports there um, you know, re- reports for, for December of 2013, 368 reports, um, which is significant. Oh, that's only for the first half of the month. But, wow. yeah, Man. just about um, just about every month, um, it ranges anywhere from 400 to 800 individual reports that he's getting. And he's just one guy with a non-toll-free hotline that people call. He's not the Air Force. He's not the local airport. He's not the sheriff's office. You were to take all of this stuff um, and do something with it, besides put it on a website where I can see that, you know, in Tacoma, Washington, people saw a disc for four minutes back in, on September 9th. Well, that's great, but, but you know, I don't have time to to look through all of these things and and do something. And there's there's narrative here, and there's all sorts of really interesting information that I'm not sure anybody is doing anything with, other than saying they have it. Um, which is which is great if it's 1965 and you're Donald Kehoe and you're running NICAP and that's what you do because it's a really new thing at that point. But but like you said, it's it's decades later and and we should be doing something with this more than what we're doing. Well, that's you touched on something that came up when I was talking to Stan uh, on the holiday special. It was it's a it's just kind of a different path uh, of the conversation, but. You you said it with uh, where they were. It was a new thing at the time. It's an interesting sort of conundrum that uh, no pun intended because the book's the chaos conundrum. <laughs> um, but it's an interesting sort of conundrum that we find ourselves in as a species, as a as a collective, as a human race. That that UFOs aren't new anymore, and yeah. culturally, it's like we can't get back to that first impression. 
And it's right. a difficult, uh, that's another difficult uh, challenge that the UFO research community needs to overcome. This already preconceived first impression that UFOs made on the human race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, because I mean, putting my sort of post-war U.S. historian hat on here, I mean, the whole flying saucer UFO phenomenon just screams space age Cold War. I mean, it's it's retro. It's almost kitschy in a lot of ways. And uh, if you look back at the 50s and 60s stuff, even the, the sort of po-faced, serious Donald Kehoe, Richard Hall types, and, it, you know, you've got that, and then you've got the sort of almost, uh, almost you know, sort of, freewheeling beatnik style of Gray Barker and Jim Mosley running out doing, you know, pranking people and hoaxing people. It's very much, it, it's the phenomenon is, is always very much of its time, and our response to it is. And, and it's not a new thing now. And, and I, I, wonder, I wonder how you reinvent it, but at the same time acknowledge that there's been this 60-year varied history of different ideas, personalities, theories, do you, going back to our, our television analogy, do you, uh, do you, you know, pull a Doctor Who and continue it and acknowledge and embrace that history? Or do you pull a Battlestar Galactica and junk it and reinvent it, um, for, for new times with new information? Um, it, you know, it, it's, I mean, that sort of, I'm sort of tongue in cheek comparing it to fictional things like we have been, but, but it, it's very much the, 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 the Part of the problem, isn't yeah. it? You know, we, we have this this long history. What do we do with that? You know, if if there was anything there that would have solved it, I like to think we would have somebody would have found it and right. done something with it. Exactly. But if there wasn't, do we keep dragging around this this anchor of of sixty years of of theories and data? Do we keep bringing up Roswell? Do, do, do we keep doing it? Do we keep bringing up Roswell as though that's the key that'll solve it all? Because it hasn't yet. Roswell, oh God, yeah. Roswell will be the t- Tunguska of <laughs> of our grandchildren. Oh God, it, it it will it will never go away, and it will always be just mysterious enough to keep people coming back. And I, I think that's one of the things I bring up in the the chapter on Roswell in the Chaos Conundrum is is what's clear to me is that something pretty interesting happened there in July 1947, and because there is this this sort of kernel of that was weird. I wonder what happened. It's never, it's never really going to go away. But the further we get away from it, I, I think the the further we get away from from coming up with the real, the real answer, or at least a real answer that is accepted by the UFO community, uh, because no matter what documentation, what witnesses come up, what declassified records might emerge, there is always going there are always going to be groups of people who uh who denounce those as as clearly disinformation propaganda because we all know that, you know, blah 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 is what happened. And so it, it's never it's never going to go away. And like like Tunguska, it, it was was it a meteor strike? Was it an energy weapon directed through time? Was it an alien saucer crash? Was it uh, some sort of bifurcation in the space time continuum when you know reality split and and suddenly you know we went off in a parallel universe because of the Tunguska event? I don't know where that one came from. But I was going to say, I think where it was did you hear that? That's awesome. I I think <laughs> I think I have I, heard. I think, Something like that. I forget now. I I want to I want to say, I, man, that it it just it just sort of screams Terrence McKenna to me, 
because he talked a lot about time bifurcation, and, and I spent a while listening to a whole bunch of his lectures um, on MP3 a while ago, and I, that one sort of sort of stuck with me because he talked a lot about like splitting time streams and time bifurcation and and all the other things that somebody who was as clearly high all the time as Terrence McKenna was would talk about. And I, I say that lovingly, um, but <laughs> the, the man was on a, a, a wide array of drugs, um, but uh, which is part of his charm. Uh, and he, he was charming. I, I loved listening to his, his stuff. His stuff with Art Bell was just was just incredible. Those are some great shows. I what it's all about, girls. I what's happened. I've been to the limit one time in my life. It took Linda Carter and Bo Derek back to back to make Rick Flair even flinch. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. The whole world looks at me. Charlotte, Greensboro, Tokyo, Melbourne. I am your champion. Learn to like it. I am Space Wolf. I'm styling a profiler. Kids stealing, wheeling, dealing. Limousine right, jet flying, son of a gun. I'm going to go, I'm going to pivot here onto a different, completely different area, but I'm sure it connects to all this because uh, I was thrilled to see you write about Bill Cooper. In the chaos conundrum, because you would not believe oh, yeah. how I still get emails from people all the time about Bill Cooper, especially, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. One, one thing is just that he seems to be a real, we talked about how it's hard for people to get into all this, or they don't know really where to start and that kind of thing. He seems to be an amazing entry point for so many people into this whole realm of weirdness that I still oh, get yeah. emails and, and, and messages from people who are like, what do you think of Behold a Pale Horse or I read Behold the Pale Horse? What do you, you know, just, it just gets dropped all the time, especially from people who are just yeah. getting into this. And we never really, I'm sure we've talked about him on the show, but never at any sort of depth. So, uh, it would be good to he, get him on the record in a sense. He was, he was amazing. Um, I mean, I, I, I disagree with him about, about a wide variety of things. And I, I think he was a, a deeply shady character. Um, just the, the amount of stuff that was, was clearly lifted and repurposed from, from other people floating around that, that bulletin board system, BBS pre-internet scene back in, you know, 87, 88, 89, 90 or so. Right. I mean, a, a lot of it, a lot of his stuff was just, was just straight lifted from, um, from Val Valerian's Matrix documents and the Krill document and John Lear's stuff. Um, which, you know, he sort of explained by saying, well, well, I know this stuff is true because I saw it back in the 60s when I was working in naval intelligence, um, which, which is, you know, one of those things that you can say all day and have no way to prove one way or the other. Right. But uh, at the same time, you know, nobody can, nobody can prove you didn't see it, right? So you, you, can, you can sort of pull that, you know, proving a negative fallacy <laughs> yeah. on them and, and, and say, well, you can't prove I didn't see these documents back in the 1960s. But what was, what was great about Bill Cooper is, is that, I mean, great in, a, in an impressive way, not great in a, I love the man and, and wish he had been my spiritual mentor, or anything, <laughs> um, is that he would um, constantly reinvent himself. That was the reason why he could stay around as long as he did. Is He did this this transition from the UFO field to the, the right-wing militia zone. I'm trying to find, and still doing some research, trying to find the point at which he changes, trying to find that, that sort of crossover point. Yeah. Because it's, it's very, very, 
uh, it's very, very subtle. If you go to the uh, his Hour of the Time website, and, and for those of you who, who don't know, Bill Cooper's dead. Um, yeah. Uh, but that was a little blunt. Uh, Bill Cooper was, uh, was <laughs> shot by uh, – was, was killed in a shootout with law enforcement officers after he shot a sheriff's deputy in the head back in 2001. And um, – and if you know, if you if you look around the web, you know he was, you know, of course, clearly the target of a hit by you know the secret government because of what he knew. No, he was he was clearly one of these tax protesters who made threatening statements and went and got into a shootout with cops. You know, it was, it was he he had a an ignoble end um, unless you're one of his one of his people, and then he was you know a martyr to the to the cause of liberty or or whatever. But, exactly. Yeah. Um, but if you go to uh, go to his website, uh, a lot of it is still there. And uh, one of the most recent things they've done in the last year or so is they have made every of every one of his his shortwave and and regular uh, satellite radio back not. XM Sirius satellite radio. I mean, giant eight foot satellite dish in your backyard radio uh, <laughs> programs from back in the '90s uh, available as as very low bandwidth MP3s. I mean, you can get the entire, you know, it's like over a thousand, like fourteen hundred hour long shows, and it, it only takes up like a gig and a half of space, oh, wow. or something like that. But I, I got to tell you that the, the meta tags on them are terrible. So um, if you download them all at once using like a download manager or something, you're, you're you're going to get a whole bunch of, of unidentifiable files, so um, be warned. But it's it's all there, and he goes from having you know he's interviewing. I mean, he's interviewing Brad Steiger. I mean, Brad Steiger, oh, wow. you know, grandfather of of paranormal, ghost, UFO stuff. He's writing about this stuff, you know, in, in books that were you know popular books. I mean, you find them on the the paperback spinner racks at supermarkets back in the day. You know, Brad Steiger was not some sort of obscure weirdo. Brad Steiger was one of the great popularizers of a lot of these stories. Yeah, exactly. um, sort of like sort of like Frank Edwards back in the 60s with his flying saucers on, you know, here and now books, you know. He was a he was a guy who wrote a lot of books and these are books that you would find in in garage sales all throughout the 80s and 90s. You know, you go to almost any you go to almost any Goodwill store, Salvation Army, any sort of thrift store today, you look at the paperbacks, I would bet you you will find a Brad Steiger book somewhere because these things were everywhere. And Bill Cooper was interviewing this guy. And then almost seamlessly he transitions into the UFOs and the UFO research community, you know, a front for the New World Order, for this political and economic conspiracy that's going to take away our freedom it's a distraction they're going to use the ufos as a um as a uh, as a, a a manufactured threat to bring about a one world government and that became his thing as he became more enmeshed in the uh in the political conspiracy theory world yeah. and uh, especially the militia movement and actually um what i found is is and, and this isn't I don't think it's any sort of groundbreaking thing, but it's one of those things where if you look at the dates of some stuff, you can see almost exactly when he makes the switch, and it's in 1994. And the reason is um, there was a writer um, – I, I bring him up in Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist uh, in some of the dark conspiracy theory stuff that I talk about from the 90s. But uh, there was a guy, a Canadian journalist named Serge Monast, mm-hmm. um, and he, he, was, he was a 
uh, Quebecois, so I'm probably like butchering however his name's pronounced. But I'm I'm a Midwesterner, so his name was Serge Monast or something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, got to put my uh, my Indiana twang in there. And um, and he was the one who who popularized the uh, the notion of Project Bluebeam. Have you heard of Project Bluebeam? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Project Project Bluebeam. You know the the holographic technology that is that is going to create this. Um, this, you know, basically what Cooper said, um, you know, an image of flying saucers that will be used to deceive people into accepting some sort of world dictatorship to fight the aliens, right? The thing is, Cooper starts talking about this, as far as I can tell, um, from all I've been able to find, he starts talking about this after Serge Monast's Project Blue Book stuff has become sort of known on the internet. So, once again, in the mid '90s, just as just as Cooper's entree into the UFO world was the result of him sort of appropriating other people's stories, uh, his exit from the UFO world and his transition to his his sort of a post UFO conspiracy uh, life was uh, was also appropriated from other people's work mm. and other people's ideas. Talent borrows, genius steals, you know, but. But at, <laughs> yeah. at some at some point, he's got sort of a, a Shia LaBeouf style plagiarism thing going on, <laughs> where you know, um, little uh, little thing that might make a little more sense might make more sense today than it will when people hear this. But you know, uh, I hate Shia LaBeouf. But um, uh, yeah, he's, I, uh, he's, a, you know, he's a douche. Yeah, um, I want him to go. But uh, you know, Bill Cooper is remarkably influential because he did put a lot of this stuff out there. And behold a pale horse, I don't know how he managed this, but still today, 2014, I go into my Barnes & Noble here in here in Flint, Michigan, and I'm pretty sure there is a copy of Behold a Pale Horse sitting there in uh, in the paranormal section of Barnes & Noble. Yeah, it's it stunningly remained. popular. It's 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 just stunning. It really is. Uh, like I said, it I, really I hear is. from people all the time. Like people I went to high school with, it'll be one of the few books that they actually know about and and can reference. It's amazing that it's such a that it's lasted so long. Yeah, and and if you look at it, and I, I think I, I bring this out in Casca number. If you if you sit down and look at it, I, I haven't done an actual statistical analysis of it, but there's a there's a healthy proportion of that book that was not written by Cooper at all. Mm. It, it's 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 a it's a compiling of a a large number of other things. And if my cord will stretch, um, can grab it off my my paranormal bookshelf of shame here in my office. And um, all the books I really shouldn't own. Um, you know what it's reminiscent of is like the is like the uh, the cliche of like the conspiracy person with all the stuff on their walls that connect with the string. It's kind you of know, like it, it's it, a book version of that almost. <laughs> um, speaking of, of conspiracy and, and esoteric um, esoteric stereotypes, when I interviewed here at Mott Community College back in 2006, after I got the job, my dean told me she told me that that when they saw on my CV the title of my my master's thesis was about flying saucers, they figured I was some sort of weirdo and. Uh, and there's some suggest some some indication that they interviewed me almost to see if I was as weird as they thought I was, um, <laughs> and they were all going to be their 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 plan was to all be wearing tinfoil hats when I walked in the interview room, and I'm like that would have been awesome. You, you <laughs> really should have done that. And they're like, well, we we didn't know, you know, somebody might have been very very offended by it. And I'm like, yeah, but 
And then it probably would have sued you. But, you know, I would have thought it was, was really amusing. But yeah. as I sit here looking through my uh, well-worn copy of um, of Behold a Pale Horse, which I bought used so Cooper wouldn't get any money off me, um, <laughs> there, there's, there's his there's his foreword that he wrote, and there's his, his Majestic 12 stuff that is basically expansions of, of what he had already published online. But then you get to the second half of the book, and, and he's got uh, a proposed – um, proposed model of a new constitution that some think tank came up with. He puts that in here. Uh, there is a, uh, a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which, you know, giant red flag right there. Um, he says it's not about Jews. It's about the Illuminati. It's all, you know, big hmm. cover-up. But um, still, it's the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which, uh, yeah, yeah. So... He's, he has this in here, and it's not even typeset in the same font as the rest of the book. It's basically almost like a Xerox copy of some old book of the Protocols <laughs> yeah. of the Elders of Zion. Uh, there's there's another there's another couple chapters of, of letters back and forth between people that aren't Cooper um, that he has uh, sort of sort of like some this guy sent me this thing, and it's printed in here. It's like it's a dot matrix printer. And it's sort of photocopied onto here. And, uh, and the whole second half of the book, almost, almost 250 pages or so, is just a, uh, a compilation of, of weird things that Cooper thinks verify his story. Yeah. But it all has this sort of, this sort of, uh, patina of looking like something that somebody dug out of a file somewhere that's been delivered to your house. And I, I sort of talk about this in, in the chaos conundrum, that what really always struck me about Behold a Pale Horse is, um, even though I, I know, objectively, I know that him putting top secret at the bottom of every page doesn't mean it's a top secret document. It feels like something secret. Yeah. It feels like something forbidden. It feels like special knowledge. And even some copies of a dot matrix printer with addresses and names redacted to protect them with, you know, margin notes handwritten. You know, yes, you know, objectively I look at this and I'm like, this is the cheesiest dang thing I've ever seen. But at the same time, it's it, it's just fascinating from a design standpoint. You know, it, it looks haphazard, but it's very... It's very calculated. Um, you will never, ever, ever catch me saying that Bill Cooper was an idiot. This guy was bright. And this guy was a master showman and a, a master presenter of information. If you listen to his, his radio program, the guy has a great speaking voice. The guy uses emotion and, and tone and, and anger. And, and frustration about whatever he's upset about on that particular day in just an amazing way. And he, he's got a great radio voice, and and he draws you in almost against your will. When I did research, the dirty little secret here, when I did research, it was some of it was listening to Bill Cooper MP3s on my iPod while I mowed the lawn. You know, so you know I'm I'm mowing the lawn and I'm listening to this stuff. Not good for your ears, kids. Don't follow my example, but. Um, I should have been wearing some sort of industrial earmuff or something, but I wasn't. I was <laughs> listening to things too loud. But I'd, I'd be listening to this stuff, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The income tax is designed to steal from us and to enrich the central bankers. And then I'm like, wait, wait, why am I nodding? Why am I nodding? I don't No, Wait. 
And I'd catch myself doing that, which um, some people would say, well, you're a gullible moron, Gullius. But, you know, no, I, I think it's, he, he was very good at drawing people in. And, um, you know, he, he kept himself on the air for almost 10 years, uh, from 93 or so to about, well, 2001 when he died. Um, he had this, you know, he, was, he was running conferences. He, he sold these books. As he said, this, this book was a huge seller. And it seems like people who you wouldn't expect to have it, have it. Right. And have read it and aren't sure whether they believe it or not, or which parts to believe and which parts to, dis- to disbelieve, which I think is very telling. Most frightening thing of, uh, of experience of my life with this book was uh, when I was a, a dirt poor, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, dirt poor graduate student in Indianapolis, I was, uh, I was as, as many of us do, selling my blood plasma one day downtown, and uh, while I can't believe how casually I just said that, I was selling my blood plasma one day, and uh, I, I had my copy of Behold a Pill Horse with me, and you want to meet people with some interesting ideas about things. You walk around a blood plasma donation center with a copy <laughs> of Behold a Pill Horse at 6 in the morning. And you will meet some interesting people who've had some interesting experiences. And um, I've decided if I ever get bored and I need to meet some interesting people, I should just walk around any sort of urban downtown area holding a copy of Behold a Pale Horse. And people will come up to you. I've looked through it at bookstores just to see if there have been any changes over the years. And, and people will come up and say, have you read that? Yeah, yeah. What do you think about it? It's It's just one of these... One of these touchstones of the 90s that, that's really, um, for as, for as important a book as it was, is, is very, very sort of little known outside of, of our little circle of, uh, circle of weirdness here. Uh, if, if you were to talk to a, a literature professor or historian of, you know, late 20th century and you say, what do you think about Bill Cooper's Behold the Pell Horse? You'd be like, what? What is that? And, you know, but you say something like Roswell or the X Files, and they jump right on that. Hmm. But one of the documents that you know was sort of a foundational text for some of that is uh, is less well known. Yeah, I'd like to know the numbers on how many copies actually uh, got sold because it's got to be. It would be. I bet it would, I I bet it would be a stunning number. It, it would be. Um, it, it would be. And as, as somebody who um, who can't get it, whose wife told me can't get a new TV until he has book royalties to pay for it, a very frustrating number of books sold. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because man, I mean, I wrote my whole book, and, and I need to buy a TV. But um, yeah, so it, it is um, a very, very sort of interesting thing. And, and what's interesting now is is that the um, his Hour of the Time website or his his disciples. And I, I think that's an okay term to use for them. His disciples' website is um, you can actually I think download it for free now, um, which I don't think has uh, has probably hurt the sales any. There is a, a Kindle edition available. It's got four stars with 424 reviews on Amazon, which is astonishing. There's an audio book um, on Audible. There's an audio CD. I mean, this is. This is a going concern, and it would not surprise me if this is still making people a lot of money. It's number two in ranked right now in um, political, social sciences, government ideologies under the radicalism category. It's number two. Uh, number 37 in astronomy and space science books. Think about that. That's it's insane. number 37 in astronomy <laughs> and space science. And it was what? It's like 20 years ago, probably? Yeah, in, uh, December of 91. So, uh, over 20 so years. almost 20, oh, over 20 years, 21, 22 years ago. Jeez. Um, 
it's ranked uh, seven thousandth, um, which is pretty high. I mean, out of all the books that Amazon sells, that's that's pretty high. So um, this this has been a remarkably uh, remarkably strong seller, and and the fact that it's still available and people are buying it in all these formats when when most of the contents are available free on the internet, what that tells me is that not only is it a very popular book and a very successful book, but it's a book that very much exists for most of those readers in a little vacuum of this is a book by a guy, not this is a book by a guy who had all of this other stuff going on and existed in this whole other context, but this is just a book by a guy. Because I don't I don't think there's a lot, of, and I'm speculating, I don't think there's a lot of crossover between people who buy this book in Barnes & Noble or Amazon, and people who frequent the uh, the militia, freeman, sovereign citizen conspiracy theory circles that, that Cooper inhabited toward the end of his life, uh, or even the wider UFO world. I, I think it, the book is very much a gateway drug in a lot of ways, but also maybe a standalone phenomena as well, mm. especially since Cooper you know, renounced a lot of the UFO things, claiming that he was disinformed. But you notice he didn't tell people not to buy the book, right? <laughs> so, you know, he, he said, yes, yes, I was duped, and I, I, am, I was wrong about that. If you, you go to the website or you Google um, all one word, Majesty 12, it's his sort of constantly sort of revised um, – Manifesto about what he thinks about all this stuff, including a whole lot of stuff about how Art Bell is is clearly you know part of this massive cover up, which I always found amusing because because I don't think Art Bell is deeply involved in more than anything and then in making more money for Art Bell, which is you know fabulous. That's what he should be doing. He's a, a masterful entertainer. Hmm. But yeah, it's Bill Cooper is is endlessly. Endlessly fascinating to me, and I'm um, I'm working on a new book right now that I'm I'm ending up I'm I'm going back to some Bill Cooper stuff. So nice. it's deeply frightening, but it's background. <laughs> it, um, it, it's it's actually a book for um, a academic publisher series on science fiction television. So I'm looking at uh, conspiracy theory and paranormal TV in the 1990s. So the X Files, Millennium, Dark Skies, Harsh Realm. First wave, that entire genre of, uh, of of stuff, and sort of placing it in its historical context with uh, the conspiracy theory and, and UFO stuff that was going on at the time, uh, which means I'm watching a lot of bad TV these days. <laughs> so, um, yeah, interesting. But that sounds that, that sounds that, intriguing. That, my lot in life. Yeah, it, it should be uh, it should be fun to write. It should be fun to write. So I'm in the very, very early stages of it, but uh, you know, I'm I'm still in the tracking down TV shows on eBay phase. So. <laughs> this is an amazing conversation in a lot of ways because I've forgot it at several points throughout the last uh, hour and a half that that there will be people listening. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. Good, I know. A good, uh, that's a sign of a good uh, conversation, good show. I think. Yeah. Well, I did notice that. You didn't mention my friend Bigfoot much in the book, so uh, what's your what's your take on all that? I it's sort of uh, my, my, I'm intrigued my, by your thoughts. My take on Bigfoot is I am not nearly enough of an expert in that sort of thing to offer an opinion beyond that it is a it is a topic a, a field that is full of very very bright, intelligent, hardworking researchers like Lauren Coleman. And a whole lot of a whole lot of scam artists. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of scam artists, and and that's what hurts it. Um, I I still I, the the 
when I think Bigfoot, what I think of is is Tom Biscardi. If that was it, was that his name, Tom Biscardi? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back in 2004, 2005, you know, calling up George Nori. I've got Bigfoot in a cage in the back of the truck. You know that that whole thing. I might be exaggerating, but I think it was pretty much along those lines. He had one. It was you know it was literally in the literally in the bag. Yeah. And um, you know it was it was this whole thing that that sort of that sort of petered out as as being a a massive massive scam and uh, that was back when I when I listened to coast to coast before I sort of sort of faded out from it and, and you know it, it's I think the Bigfoot thing is is like I, like I said earlier out of out of all of these fields I think cryptozoology has the easiest job because these creatures are either there or they aren't right yes I've and thought that it, too it, myself yeah. It, it, it's a question of, of of catching them and testing them and proving to non uh, to, to sort of non enthusiast actual you know scientists who will need to be convinced right that that this is these creatures are something are something new and different or something very old and different um, and I I don't I don't have any trouble imagining that yeah you know if if somebody were to to find you know, a creature who was significantly different enough to be, quote, unknown or, or hidden or lost and, and sufficiently like the stories of, of what people have seen as Bigfoot or, or any of those creatures, that, yeah, that would, it wouldn't, it would be easy to convince me with the right proof. Yeah. Much more so than, than alien visitors or, or ghosts. I, I think, maybe this is, this is a weird thing to say and maybe this is a, an indication of just, just, you know how weird I am, or how weird a lot of this stuff is. I, I I almost put cryptozoology in a different category because it's just not weird enough. You know, it, it's. I see it, what you're saying. Me, it's yeah. In the, yeah. It, it's in the same. It's in the same category as um as Atlantis, or as um as Troy was before before Schliemann's archaeologists found the ruins of Troy. It's, it's like the Trojan War. It's it's a, a long-talked-about thing that might or might, might not be there, and eventually somebody will either find it or they won't. Uh, but until there is a successful conclusion to the story, until something is found, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be open to speculation, and, and unfortunately it's going to be open to, uh, to scammers. But the great thing about Bigfoot is, or cryptozoology in general, is that the scams are honestly pretty easy pretty easy to debunk either this is a creature that is unknown to science or it's something that no we we have one of those and genetically it's one of these even if it looks a little funny yeah it seems, you know, it, it's, it, it seems like it's the one paranormal genre that is that could make the leap into actual science or or it's like yeah that, that, that i feel like if they ever caught the bigfoot or if they ever proved the existence of bigfoot cryptozoology would would be folded into mainstream science. And no, I don't or, think that's going to happen least, with ghosts or UFOs or anything like that. Yeah, or, or at the very least what would happen is is that particular discovery of that particular creature would be, would be like you said, folded into the, the biology and anatomy or, or whatever, um, of or depending on how, how primate it was, what kind of primate it was, the anthropology yeah. of, uh, of these things. And then cryptozoology as a fringe area would continue looking for other creatures. Other mythical creatures, you know, looking for the kraken, looking for—I um, don't even know what they're looking for. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the you know, that's the weird. Birds or something. I've thought about that too. I, th- I think I asked Lauren Coleman about this, but I forget uh, precisely his answer. But it's like 
I, I worry for I worry for cryptozoology also that if they ever do prove the Bigfoot's existence, then they lose like their main they lose the Hulk Hogan of of cryptozoology. <laughs> so right, yeah, that's that's a that's a good way to to put it. You know, once Bigfoot or the Loch Ness monster, e- e- either one of those, if either one of those are are proven conclusively to be something or other, then it, it's it's gonna it's gonna go from being something that everybody has heard of, whether they know it or not, like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, to to something that is probably ranking somewhere below research into orgone technology on the uh, on on the list of paranormal things that the public has any clue about. Hmm. Um, which is because you know there, there's only so many mysterious creatures that that resonate with the public, and they're the ones that have gotten all the press. I hate the way I sort of keep going back to this as a market-driven phenomenon, but isn't everything these days. It is. Um, yeah. yeah, believe me, I, so, you know, that's the way I look at a lot of this stuff, too. It's it's a, it's a show in a way. It's kind of it is. hard to really look at it any other way if you're, if you're being honest, if you're being intellectually honest. Yeah. And honestly, what we might call mainstream mainstream scholarship isn't much different. Only it's it's aimed at other scholars. If you look at uh, if you look at the, um, the 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 conference programs for any of the, the conferences of the big you know historical associations or political science associations or the uh, modern language association that does all the language and literature stuff, what you'll see are are trends in research and trends in writing. And there, there are things that. Are, that Come and go in and out of fashion, uh, just like all these other things. And uh, and and people tend to uh, to pitch their research in directions that uh, that are marketable because they have to go out on the job market or they have to uh, to publish this article or that book to uh, to get a job or to to get tenure or to remain employed in some way. So you know everything everything is driven by by supply and demand. And I, I don't mean that in a sort of you know libertarian you know, free market thing, but, you know, people, if, if nobody wants it, not a lot of people are going to do it. Hmm. And I, I think cryptozoologically, you know, what sells are, are the things that, that pe- the proven commodities, like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster. We can stretch it to, you know, your, your, your Ogopogos or your, your Yetis, but, but generally it's those, uh, it's those Hulk Hogan type attractions. You solve enough of these mysteries, and, and you're left with whatever cryptozoology's Dolph Ziggler is. And nobody <laughs> wants that. So, um, or Damien Sandow. There you go. So, you know, you, you, you have these things that, yes, yes, to an enthusiast, you know, yes, I, I will watch a Dolph Ziggler match any day of the week. You know, good worker. But, you know, you're not going to sell the PPV, the pay-per-view, with, uh, with, with that guy. You know? Exactly. So it's, so. A, it's a double-edged sword uh for the for the crypto community, but like I said, uh, well, well, you 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 were right that they if they found the Bigfoot, he would get adopted by uh, zoology. Like like we said, they would lose their Hulk Hogan, but I think that it would be good for cryptozoology maybe in the long run because at least it, it would it would no longer be dismissed. It would be hard right. to dismiss the idea that there are creatures out there that we haven't found yet. Um, right. I don't see why that's such a hard thing for. <laughs> the mainstream didn't understand, but I, I, it still is. Con- like, people don't take it seriously, but they find creatures all the time. It, so uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's and the thing is, that the the creatures they're finding aren't the creatures that cryptozoologists tend to be looking for. Right, so cryptozoologists right. are are dismissed as as crackpots. But you know, look, we we found a different species of this, that, or the other rodent. That 
sort of indicates that, yes, there are things out there that haven't been categorized or that have been miscategorized mm. or, or that have been thought to be extinct that really aren't. Because, you know, for all of our technology and, and, and everything, the world is still a pretty darn big place with a lot of places that we haven't explored as we haven't explored thoroughly we might have mapped them we we might have you know surveyed them but that doesn't mean that we've turned the scientists loose loose on them to catalog every you know plant and animal and planimal that might be out there planimal i'm not sure that's a thing but um you know we haven't categorized all these things yet so but yeah you you find something cool but it's not bigfoot or the loch ness monster so clearly those things are something to be laughed at right you know it, it's just you know, I think the laughter factor is is sadder and harder to justify in cryptozoology in any of these other fields. You know, I've I've no problem sharing in the laughter at some of the flying saucer theories out there, but you know, when you have a guy like Lauren Coleman who's done a lot of, and others like him who've done a lot of good work about this stuff, and people just sort of dismiss the whole field, I'm just like, look, this isn't this is probably the least far fetched of any of this stuff. You know, but right. I, I think I think we we've you know you and I have done it in this conversation. We've lumped cryptozoology in with the paranormal, and um, having your big media outlets also be the big media outlets of paranormal stuff, that has an effect too. But you go where the audience is. The American Zoological Association isn't going to pay attention exactly. to your Bigfoot talk, so you, you have to go where the audience is. But then that's this sort of sort of vicious vicious feedback loop here of you know you're 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 preaching to the you're preaching to the choir and uh, and your choir is nuts or the perception is that your choir is nuts mm. and so you're nuts for preaching to them so basically the the uber skeptics will dismiss anybody they want for any reason they want because they can and um without solid evidence it's hard to fight back but I, th I think cryptozoology has the has the best chance of any of these. Absolutely, yeah. Especially because it's like, uh, unlike UFOs and ghosts, it's it's draped over animals. We know animals right. are real, so <laughs> so right. So it, it yeah. has the, the foundation is is real. We just don't know <laughs> what, what yeah. how it's all going to pan out. Exactly. It's not like you know, ghost hunting is looking for a kind of ghost that's different from all the all the other ghosts that science accepts, right? Exactly. You know, but but you know, we're looking for a primate, or we're looking for a lake dwelling reptile or amphibian of some sort. You know, we know about lake dwelling amphibians. We know about primates. These are actual things, um, and there just might be some out there that have escaped categorization and have you know sort of sort of lurked on the edges of things for a while. I, I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's crazy. I don't think that's crazy. I'm in agreement there. Now you you say you were kind of burned out on contactees, but I do want to ask yeah. you. You've done a lot of research into this. Um, we've never done a proper show on contactees. Maybe I will do one uh, down the line. I, I just came up with a cool idea. Would be have you and Nick together on to do a contactee show. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I love his book. I love I love his contact ebook. I, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it'd be cool to have, do like a double expert kind of thing. Um, but my question for you, uh, and I'm sure I've asked this. I may have even asked it of Nick, or I may have asked it of of. I think maybe I asked Bud Hopkins, uh, but I don't recall specifically. But the question is, and it's always sort of vexed me, and that is just why things changed from contactees to abductees. Um, there's still people who claim they're contactees, I presume. I mean, there's people who are making crazy claims yeah. nowadays. It's it's insane. 
you know, there are people that claim outright that they're hybrids or that they're the, the, the claims have gotten even more outlandish and right. insane. But um, but but if we're looking at it from a historical perspective, it's interesting that there was the contactee era, then the abductee era, mm-hmm. and there was this. What what happened there? What was the what was the, the the tipping point that changed all that, and why? There's a few things, and. The way I sort of have, have conceptualized it, and, and I didn't really do this in extraterrestrials in the American zeitgeist, available on Kindle at the, the an, an affordable price, um, but uh, – cheap plug there. Yeah, um, good man, good man. What, I avoided abductions completely in that book because that, that's a quagmire – that you just don't want to get into right. because you start talking about abductions and all of a sudden, unlike contactees, there is a vast amount of scholarly material about abductions, particularly um, psychology and sociology and cultural studies stuff. And I didn't want to deal with the book would have been twice as long just to explain why I wasn't talking about abductions. So I just said, I'm not talking about abductions. But as I've, because you're not the first one to have asked that, you know, what caused the big changeover? Um, and I, I don't think, I don't think it was a changeover as much as it was an eclipse. Okay. Yeah. The contactees, the contactees fade out for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that many of their claims are are not easily provable, and in some cases are easily conclusively disprovable, particularly their photographs. So when Jim Mosley. And, uh, and his compatriots in, uh, Nexus and Saucer News in the 1950s published an expose of Adamski where they talked to people who knew him and were, were willing to come forward and, 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 and say unequivocally these photographs were made from some light bulbs and a hubcap. That knocks the stuffing out of the contactees as far as the rest of the ufological world goes, yeah. uh, or the saucer world. They're fakes, they're frauds, we're going to paint them all with this brush, and we're going to move on to the next thing, which seems to be the Kehoe NICAP, we're gathering data sort of thing. But then, so, so the, contactees, the contactees fade out, and I think another thing that, um, that causes the contactees to fade out, and I, this sort of came to me, as, as sort of a, a bizarre sort of intuition thing. So it came to me so suddenly when I was on the air with uh, with Greg Bishop a few months ago that I worry that I actually read it somewhere and forgot I read it, but it, it seems to make so much sense. The contactees begin to fade out just as the African-American civil rights movement starts to pick up. Hmm. And so you have people in the contactees, and, and this is the sort of working hypothesis and theory that, that I'm going with with these guys from a historical point of view, is that in a time of, of ideological and cultural repression during the 1950s, when, when there was a, a certain way that people were expected to think and act, especially about the government, especially about foreign policy, to speak out against war or in favor of peace, to speak out against nuclear armament, to speak out against this attitude of arrogance and hostility towards our our enemies around the world, um, could be seen as suspect. But if you're saying it within the context that it's a message from the Space Brothers, you don't escape all scrutiny, as as Nick Redfern has uh, investigated and pointed out. Guys like Adamski did get visits from the FBI. But guys like Adamski were visited by the FBI and then kind of dismissed as a crackpot. 
or a, a fraudster or a hoaxer or somebody who it wasn't their job to worry about because he's not really a communist. He's just a he's lunatic. just a, a, cra- a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> so it was sort of a, a useful. A useful, um, a useful cloak. Now, that's not to say that that many of the contactees didn't believe that they had experiences and didn't believe what these experiences were. But especially in the case of Adamski, one of the things I've done is I've gone back to his writings um, in the nineteen earlier in the nineteen forties and in the nineteen thirties, and a lot of his his philosophical ideas are the same. It's just by the 50s, he's added flying saucers to them. So there's a consistency in Adamski's ideas about, about brotherhood and things like that, that the flying saucers were added to either as a, a sort of deflection against people who might be suspicious of his ideological bent, because believe me, it is way, way, way um, easier to be vaguely leftish leaning in the 1930s than it is in the late 1940s and 1950s. Um, Communist Party was at its peak in the 1930s. So saying things in the 1930s that were very much focused on, on peak and, um, and global brotherhood, uh, there were a lot of people doing that. But in the 1950s, it was mostly people who were under some sort of political scrutiny who were doing it. And, and so the flying saucer thing for Adamski might have added to that um, sort of deflection, but it, it also was a way to market it, right? Everything you know, comes down to finding an audience, and yeah. flying saucers were big. So Adamski takes his ideas and, and attaches flying saucers to them, gets his his message of, of love and brothership, brothership um, brotherhood, <laughs> uh, or brothership, um, fellowship, that's it, uh, fellowship and brotherhood out to a larger number of people. Now, as far as the transition from contactees to abductees, I think the contactees fade from prominence among the general ufological public and really fade from prominence among the general general public by the early 1960s, especially after uh, after Adamski dies. He, he was uh, he was very much the the figurehead of this movement, and um, other guys like Van Tassel, George Hunt Williamson, um, George King kept going with his Ethereum Society. It's, it's going today. Um, I, 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 I follow them on Facebook. The Ethereum Society is is still there. But um, but is the, the is main the, is that the place in uh, there's a place in San Diego that I forget the name of it now. Uh, Craig should um, bring me to it. I forget the name. Yeah, um, yeah. It, that's. Um, yeah, Los Angeles or San Diego or one of those places is their big headquarters, and they've got they've Must got be. branch offices all over the uh, the country. There's one there's one down the road in uh, in suburban Detroit that I, I keep meaning to uh, to go to, but I I, I just yeah. don't really want to. Um, that's like I really <laughs> no, that that that's fine. But yeah, that that is the the same Ethereum Society that contacted George King founded back in the fifties. But then you get the rise of this, this sort of, uh, we're, we're tracking the sightings and that are being covered up by the Air Force, Project Blue Book, NICAP sort of motif. And then, then the abductee thing appears to emerge. And if you're, you're taking the sort of, sort of bird's eye view of the, the sort of shape of this UFO narrative, um, that's the way it looks, right? You get contactees, then, then abductees. But there's a sort of intermediate period where you have, a whole bunch of different types of encounters between people and some type of 
alleged alien visitor that don't fit into either the contactee category of um, shapely, attractive humans from other planets and don't fit into the sinister abduction phenomena that begins with Betty and Barney Hill. I think um, Antonio uh, Villas-Boas, the Antonio Villas-Boas case, um, I think you can fit that into any number of categories, but where it fits for me is in this sort of intermediate period. And a great resource for this is, um, oh, uh, Rosales, Albert, Albert yeah. Rosales um, runs the, the humanoid right, um, yeah. a website about humanoid categorization, uh, categories of humanoids and, and contact stories. But also, um, where I got my first introduction to all that was uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen's uh, book from the late 60s, Flying Saucer Occupants, mm. where they actually, in the back, uh, after telling all these stories, uh, have a chart of um, – of how many different kinds of encounters there were with different types of flying saucer occupants, everything ranging from hairy dwarves to human-looking people to rope, different types of robots. So throughout the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of diversity in the type of alleged space aliens that, uh, that people were meeting with. Um, and then the Betty and Barney Hill thing happens. You have uh, the, the book Interrupted Journey, uh, John Fuller's book that comes out about their story. Uh, crucially, you have the TV movie. Uh, and then in the 1980s, you get you start to get the, the Bud Hopkins and um, and John Mack sort of sort of trend of, of researching these things, and that sort of takes over in the popular culture. I'm not sure why it happened. As I finally get around to answering your question, okay. uh, I'm not sure why it happened, but what's clear is that it wasn't as much um, a turning point from contactees to abductees as it is that these two categories are on opposite ends of what seems to be a, a very sort of sort of shallow curve that we're turning. It's not a turning point; it's more a curve we're going around so gradually that we're not. We don't really realize it's something different until we realize that yeah, okay. well, this is very different. So I'm not sure how noticeable it was to people living it at the time. If you look back at like the NICAP newsletters and the magazines of the time, what you see is initially a lot of skepticism of these abductee claims, um, a lot of connecting them to the old contactee stuff and dismissing them that way, and you get a sort of gradual acceptance as more and more of these stories come out. So it's it's a longer process than it looks from our 21st century vantage point, I think. Yeah, we have the benefit of hindsight to see that it's changing. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, you know, it's kind of remarkable to look back and see the change from this friendly presence to then all of a sudden everybody was all concerned and fearful of uh, of ETs. It's, it's, a, it's an odd sort of... Uh, thing you wonder again it goes back to the idea of like first impressions and you, you just i'm fascinated i guess by the public perception of all this and that's 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 an interesting sort of uh way things changed yeah absolutely it's become so the world has become so fragmented that it's hard to really get a gauge on what people believe as far as all this stuff goes too yeah and um and belief is a is a is a tricky word and a tricky concept you know, to begin with, and, and then you, you throw in the fact that that nobody, very few people, if you say flying saucers or UFOs, everybody has a different idea of what that even means. Right, right. Um, and it, it's so informed by the popular culture, and the popular culture is then in turn informed by, you know, the theories and ideas that are out there that it's it's hard to tell 
where one begins and another ends. It, it's it's something that I've given up trying to explain and am content just to study. Explain what it all means, you mean? It, explain what it all means. Explain exactly where the dividing line is between what is actually there and what is, is simply the sort of pop cultural manifestation of what might be there or, or an interpretation. Um, and, and, of course, trying to figure out what it all means. Um, it's not something I, I feel qualified to do at this point. And so I'll, I'll keep talking and writing about the, you know, the, the culture surrounding the phenomenon. But to get more deeply into that is, is, is like you termed it, it's, it's a rabbit hole that, that I, I'm not sure I want to go much further down just for my own sense of <laughs> sanity and, and, yeah. and, you know, actually having to, to function you know, as a as a working human being with a with a regular job and a, a family and everything, so it's it, it's a tough thing. I, I have a, uh, a a a a strange and almost pitying admiration for the few actual full time paranormal investigators out there. It's a uh, it's a, a cruel mistress to to sort of slave your life to, because there's. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any significant hope that you're going to get any sort of resolution. At least, at least, you know, at least religious belief has some sort of, some sort of afterlife for the faithful. I'm not sure what ufology offers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I always advise people, have a plan B. Have a, learn a trade before you become a UFO <laughs> learn a trade. researcher. Uh, because that, that's what I tell students who want to be history majors, too. You know? <laughs> Learn a trade, you know. Do do auto maintenance. That the money's the money's in fixing cars, kids. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Now you teased uh, your your what? What's this? Is the what's next for you? Uh, I think because because we're up to two hours now, and uh, I yeah. feel like I, you're, yeah, I've, I've actually got to get going. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I know. Soon. I know. I I'm know. Just teasing. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I've already I already know that you're you're going to be uh, you're going to be sort of joining the fold here of, of frequent guests. Well, so. that would. That that's awesome because uh, because this is fun. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, this yeah, was an that, amazing conversation. Like, I, we could we could go for like another three hours and probably I know not even realize. I know. It. So, um, as as far as what's next for me, yes. um, I mentioned uh, a, a book I'm writing. Um, just uh, just sort of signed the contracts a couple of weeks ago on it for uh, Roman and Littlefield, which is uh, an academic publisher, mostly of, of humanities and and uh, social science stuff, um, for their series on science fiction television about the intersection of um, conspiracy theory and the paranormal, uh, how the, that culture impacted and was impacted by um, the science fiction TV of the 90s. So everything from the X-Files to conspiracy theory and paranormal and paranoia type stuff popping up uh, in other science fiction shows. Um, it, it, it sort of appeared everywhere. You're watching, um, you're watching Star Trek and, and suddenly you have this new Deep Space Nine show where you have Section 31, which is, which is almost pulled out of somebody's Usenet post about what the extra governmental cabal might be up to, right? So you have all these little strands pulled from the culture. So it's, um, it's not so much a book about the paranormal as about the pop culture side of, uh, side of things. And, and that is, um, that's going to be occupying most of my, uh, most of my writing time, uh, during this year. I'm going to be writing it over the course of, of 2014. I'm going to probably, hopefully, uh, continue, uh, continue blogging at ajgullius.com. Hopefully doing that a bit more. Uh, I, I sort of slacked off while I was writing other stuff. You know, you, you get done writing a chapter of a book and you really don't want to post something to a website because right. it's either going to give away something you just wrote 
quote for the book, or it's, it's going to be a post like, I just wrote, you know, 5,000 words, and I'm going to go have a beer now, you know, which, which yeah. you know, doesn't really do a lot for people. And then, you know, Facebook, we have Facebook for that. But um, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be going to be blogging, um, blogging a bit more. But uh, but this uh, this giant book about the sci-fi stuff in the 90s is the big project. And hopefully, hopefully some more podcast stuff. Nice. nice. It's, it's fun and, and doesn't take up a huge amount of time. Awesome. Like I said, uh, we definitely want to have you back on the show because we could talk for quite a while. And I'd I be very cool with that. I really, uh, I really like your, your your detached perspective on all this. Like I said, we're sort of uh, we're sort of kinfolk in that way, as people yeah. who look at this from a from a very different perspective on all this and try not to get so deep into it that you're that you're up to your neck in suppositions that you have to keep. You know, spinning plates. It's a very uh, right, I've mixed yeah. like eight metaphors there, but <laughs> I think you I think you know what I mean. Um, yeah, we, we've we've staked our reputations and our work on on the way we observe it, not the answers we've come up with or the theories we have. Exactly, which is I think a much a much I I, I won't I mean cynically I can say it's a much safer way to do it, but it's also I think much more much more useful in a lot of ways. You know, because every every field needs its commentators there you so go that's I, I think that's the role a lot of you and a lot of other podcast hosts do is is you're not journalists per se but but you're you're commentators on the culture and and facilitating conversations which is important well i think this was a great conversation aaron i can't thank you enough yeah. for coming on the show well thanks for having me on that does it for this edition of boa audio season eight Big, big thanks to Aaron Gullius for coming on the show and for giving us so much time. Be sure to stop by his website, www.ajgullius.com, and that is spelled A-J-G-U-L-Y-A-S.com. And go out and get your hands on a copy of The Chaos Conundrum, Essays on UFOs, Ghosts, and Other High Strangeness, in our non-rational and atemporal world from Red Star Books. Be sure to check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we're going to limit it to just two emails here this week because I want to get the episode out to folks as soon as possible. And we got two emails here that reference some deep cuts in the BOA Audio Archive, which I really do appreciate. So let's dive on in. The first one comes from Steve in Ohio, and here's what he has to say. In case you didn't know, I found the controversy tapes on iTunes. These were done by a former BOA Audio guest, the late Kent Daniel Bentkowski. He was a great guest. Steve in Ohio. Thank you very much for writing in, Steve, and thank you for the heads up regarding the controversy tapes. I actually had to dig into the BOA Audio Archive myself here to try and remember when we had the late Kent Daniel Bentkowski on BOA Audio, and stunningly, it was all the way back in Season 2, which is quite a long time ago. Let me take a look here and see what the date is on that episode we posted. May 12, 2007, so almost seven years ago that we had the late Kent Daniel Bentkowski on the program. He obviously subsequently passed away a few years later, and I can't recall the conversation 
as well as I would like, but I do remember that I enjoyed it quite a bit and delved into a whole bunch of interesting conspiracy topics looking at the esoteric underpinnings of popular movies and conspiracies revolving around microchips and Hillary Clinton. Kent Daniel Benkowski definitely had a very unique slant on things and a very compelling perspective on the world of conspiracy theory, and he is definitely missed. So folks should definitely punch in the controversy tapes on iTunes and check out some classic programs from a former BOA Audio guest who is no longer with us, the late Kent Daniel Bentkowski. Thank you once again, Steve, for bringing this to our attention. And I highly recommend the BOA Audio listeners go out and check out the controversy tapes. Next email comes from Michael in Minnesota. Here's what he has to say. Just re-listening to your BOA Audio interview with R. Gary Patterson. You asked him about Rush Conspiracies. This might not have been well known at the time, but look up Solaris Blue Raven. She claimed to have been electronically harassed by Neil Pert via voice-to-skull technology. You can hear her Saturday night talk show on freedomslips.com. Michael in Minnesota. Very fascinating stuff. I'm going to have to look into this one, Michael. Solaris Blue Raven saying she was electronically harassed by Neil Pert via voice-to-skull technology. Only in the esoteric, my friends, can you hear stories like this. So I will definitely look into that one. Thank you for bringing it to our attention, Michael in Minnesota. Another reference to a deep-cut episode from the BOA Audio Archive. Our Gary Patterson appeared on the program way back on BOA Audio Season 5. Definitely somebody I'd like to get back on the program in the future to talk about paranormal and conspiracy-related elements surrounding the world of pop music. And that does it for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. As I said, we were going to do a short and to-the-point installment of the segment here on the program this week, and I think we did. Thanks to Steve in Ohio for writing in. Thanks to Michael in Minnesota for his email as well. If you'd like to reach out to me for future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, there are a number of ways to do so. You can write to banal at banalofamerica.com or just go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. If you want to use the old school method of reaching out to me, just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That will also reach me. Or join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we discuss the world of pop culture and the paranormal with a small circle of friends, but we're always looking for newcomers to join in on the fun. If you don't want to try and scribble down all those letters, just head on over to Banal of America and click the forum button. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so just search out Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That will bring up my respective profiles on those sites. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, please allow me to plug Benal of America on Facebook, 
That is where you're going to get the most breaking news about what's happening at BOA. That's kind of where we keep our in-house notes. So if you want to know what's going on with Banal of America, why the next episode you've been waiting for still has not appeared at BOA, chances are you're going to get your answer at Banal of America on Facebook. Or just ask me on there and I'd be happy to answer you. As you can imagine, it is Facebook and it is very interactive. So just punch in Banal of America on Facebook and like us. Up next, it's time to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. Considering that I can hear the snow melting outside and I know that spring is on its way, perhaps it's time for a little spring cleaning of sorts, a little call to arms at Benal of America, and opening up the gates here at BOA for potential new writers at the website. I'd like to bring in some fresh voices here to help us usher in the springtime. So to all those hardcore BOA audio listeners out there right now who are listening to the show, do you have something to say about the esoteric and the paranormal? Would you like to write for BOA? Reach out to me, get in touch, let me know what you have to say, let me know what you might want to write about for Banal of America, because we are definitely looking for some new writers at BOA. I got to get on the stick and get in touch with Bruce Rucks and hopefully bring him into the mix here at Banal of America. But beyond that, I want some additional writers at BOA, some fresh new voices would be fantastic. So I'm turning it over here to the hardcore BOA audio listeners. I know you're out there. I know you have something to say about the esoteric. As I said, get in touch with me, and I'd be happy to talk to you about coming on board at Banal of America. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the BOA franchise. How do you do that? That is simple. Head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you'd like to make a donation, you can do so via sending your donation to our snail mail address. That you can find at Banal of America next to the PayPal button. If you do mail us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Banal and not Banal of America because my bank is anal and they will not allow me to cash those checks. And please include some form of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation. As always, I say it at the end of the show when we make the call for donations, but it bears repeating, my friends. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. 
on the next edition of BOA Audio, I've got a couple of different irons in the fire, so it's hard for me right now to tell you what you'll be hearing on the program next. I just scheduled another live edition of the program, which will be coming at you on Saturday, March 22nd, with a couple of good friends of the show who have yet to appear on Banal of America. I'm going to have more details about that in the next few days. But until then, I need to make a decision of sorts. I'm going to have a crazy work week that actually starts tomorrow. It's going to keep me tied up for about six or seven days. So if there's an opportunity to do a program in the interim, we will definitely try and do so. I can't tell you for sure that is the case, as I said, because my work week is about to get very, very crazy. But I'm looking at my schedule right now, and I've got a couple of open days before the 22nd, so if I can do so, maybe I'll jam another installment of the show in there so we don't have folks waiting too long between episodes. Stay tuned to Banal of America and BOA on Facebook for further details. Worst case scenario, you got to wait 11 days for the next edition of the program. But on the bright side, by the 22nd, my schedule will have cleared up quite a bit. And in the week following that, I've got three programs scheduled to be taped. So the back catalog will begin really filling up after that and hopefully we'll be able to get back on a weekly schedule for all of you great folks out there as i said stay tuned to banal of america and boa on facebook for further details and with all that said we close the book on this edition of the program once again big big thanks to aaron gullius for coming on the show check out the chaos conundrum folks And big thanks to Steve in Ohio, as well as Michael in Minnesota, for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. Finally, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the ones who stick around to the very end and listen to my ramblings here at the end of the show. Thank you for your enduring support of the program. You are the fuel that drives the mothership of paranormal entertainment that is Banal of America. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing.